Hey, Paul, I'm excited to tell you that we are launching a Curbsiders Patreon. Have you heard about this? I, I did because I work with you, but tell me more about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, we want to be able to keep offering this great free content, and we're doing things like upgrading our website. We offer transcripts now for episodes, recording new seasons of our miniseries, Teach and Addiction Medicine. The Digest is growing its staff. And Paul, now we're on video. People can see us uh, as we're talking right here. What a treat for our listeners. That's right. So with Cashlack admitting privileges, they're going to get... All episodes ad-free, that's the whole back catalog, plus future episodes. And twice monthly, there's going to be bonus episodes where me and you recap a show and answer some listener questions. So people should sign up today at patreon.com slash curbsiders, and uh, you get a whole lot of more of Paul, America's PCP. <laughs> The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with several great friends. Uh, we are at ACP. This is our recap episode for day one. I'm going to throw it to my wonderful co-host, Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> great, Matt. Thanks for asking. How are you? Good. So great. we are going to be recapping some of our favorite pearls from day one. We'll be doing this again, uh, you know, in a, throughout. I think we're going to do two recaps this time, Paul. So uh, hold. Right, but from day one, we tried to furiously, furiously go to a lot of sessions. Um, maybe, maybe I'll, since it's since we're on serious. video here, I probably should introduce the, our co-host. I think better to have them just saying there awkwardly. Yeah. No. The, the, the furious <laughs> okay, transition. Good. Speaking of furiously, okay. let's let's so start. So the, uh... the hosts of the Cribsiders, both Medpeds oh, physicians. Yeah. What's right. Up? Uh, <laughs> Doctor Doctor Justin Burke, how are you, Justin? Doing great. It's exciting to be here back with you guys in and, person. And you are, uh, even though you've done this for the Curbsiders for years, you are officially here as a recap. Uh, you're you're on the you're on the big stage at this conference. Uh, that's right. I'm doing recaps. a highlight session where at the very end, the very last session where everyone has their suitcases, we're doing a quick <laughs> recap of the entire conference in case anyone missed the first two and a half days. Now, did they book you or did they book Shrabies for the recap? It's, it's a we only come in, uh, we talk to our publicist and we only come in a, in a pair. That's Jeez. the right move. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Chris, uh, Chris the Chew Man Chew. Uh, every, everybody knows you, Chris. How are you doing? Great, man. All I right. love being here. Well, yeah, as always, Chris, uh, I think you've been on like all conference recaps for ACP uh, and probably S several SGM and, and now AAP yeah. if you guys yeah. are peds. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to go first. First topic of the day uh, hypogonadism. Paul, episode number one of Curbsiders was hypogonadism. High time that we almost 400 episodes later <laughs> update this. And uh, Paul, you had some great stuff. So let's start us off here. Sure. I will mention that. Since I wasn't on that episode and it was before I was part of Curbsiders, it's basically not even a real episode. But I will <laughs> will mention this is this was a great talk by uh, Dr. Brad Annawalt at the University of Washington, who talked about the not screening for which we'll get into and management of, of hypogonadism. So it, the point being, he started out with you don't screen. So this is not something that you're just sort of shotgun testing for necessarily. Like it's. I think testosterone is checked for a lot of reasons. A lot of times because patients ask, they may be reporting symptoms of fatigue or maybe they feel decreased um, attention, but these are not typical symptoms of hypogonadism. Um, the most 
I thought this was a funny way to say it. Specific, non-specific symptom of hypogonadism is actually decreased libido. Right. So of all of them, that's maybe the one that should maybe make you think about it. And that requires the presence of a previously intact libido. So it's if you always had a little libido, that's different than someone who had a libido that was quote unquote normal and then declined over time. I can just see time. Justin suppressing multiple <laughs> comments here. I'm, I'm going to go. How yeah. do you validate what an increased libido, what's a baseline libido that we right can question. use? Right question. It's the, the Burke libido scale. That's um, right. Yet to be validated. <laughs> that's right. So you're, it's just a, a test waiting for you to design it, Dr. Burke. I'll work on it. Um, but I, so don't don't go shotgun testing. Have a relatively um, high threshold to be looking for. And then in terms of the testing, why don't I jump to that right now? It's did you guys know that the CDC cares about <laughs> about serum T levels? I I did not know that. So we are to be looking at. I want to find the exact words here. A validated harmonized essay, which I think is lovely. So the CDC now has a program for validation of this test. You can go to the CDC's website and look for validated labs on their site. So that you're you're making because we know. Testosterone testing can be widely variable, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But to at least have validation within the test itself is helpful. So you can actually check to make sure that your lab is a validated, harmonized mm. site for testosterone testing. So like the INR for testosterone then. Yeah, sounds like <laughs> it. I don't know. I don't know that that I wanna... Does that work out well? I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we'll say yes, like the INR for testosterone testing. Um, other things in terms of testing. So again, if you have, we talked about this, there's a lot of day-to-day variations. So if you have this sort of marginally low level because someone checked or a patient comes to you and their testosterone's a little bit low, you must confirm this with a morning fasting sample. And the morning sample, I think I knew, I don't know that the fasting part was on my radar at all. Yeah, it is. I, I, I think it's hard to always get the morning sample, let alone morning and fasting. But yes, that it's, was uh, Dr. Colburn, the great Dr. Colburn, your my, nemesis. My nemesis, yeah. He, of course, is, he said libido is the symptom you look for and and fasting. So I mean, know, he sounds like he knows some stuff. I like hearing it from you. Yeah, I like hearing it from you. better for me. Let's remind ourselves and the audience of these great. Uh, yes. yes. How big of a difference by fasting? So glad you asked, Dr. Shu. It is between 40 to 50 nanograms per deciliter Who? higher in fasting samples. So you can have like this marginal level if you repeat it with fasting and morning sample because it doesn't always have to be, well, we won't get into that, but the, the fasting samples have less variability among them and also tend to be higher in general. So you, you can do sort of your initial screening test, but you must confirm with a fasting morning sample. Like 200 tends to be like the low for a lot of different labs, right? So that's a huge difference. It's a big difference. Yeah, that's right. And depending on your reference range, there are maybe less reputable places that have funny names like the Adonis, you know, Virility Restoration Center, I think is one that was cited Amazing. that might have a, a higher reference range. So as a result, it's easier to be low. So it's it's better to, again, mm -hmm. the validation makes a difference. Um, other stuff, he talked a lot about Kleinfelders in terms of being on your radar in term, when you're thinking about sort of hypogonadism, which is not something I thought as much about. It's He made the point that it is often something that is diagnosed in adolescence by our excellent um, pediatrics colleagues, but it may often present as infertility in men in their 20s and 30s. Uh, and these patients, if they do have Kleinfelder, it's almost always have an elevated FSH and LH, and the testosterone decrease may lag behind that. So you may have a normal T at first that then declines over time. And there's a huge phenotype of Kleinfelders. It's not always um, clearly obvious. About 50% of the time, it's undiagnosed, which I thought was a stunning number. Um, and it, it matters, especially for these younger patients, because it doesn't necessarily mean there's no reproduction. They actually, 50% of men with Kleinfelders have extractable sperm. So if they're interested in having children, there's still things that you can do to make sure that that actually happens. Any any tips on recognizing Kleinfelters? Because I... I, I have limited memory of what that is and how to recognize it. I'm so glad you asked. There was a lot talked about the physical examination specifically and looking at testes volume, mm -hmm. which is I've read the reports of my endocrinology colleagues. I'm like, good for you. I don't know what that means or how you checked. 
Um, it turns out, as you guys apparently have discussed on an episode that I didn't pay any attention to, there is an orchiometer that you can actually get from endocrine.org that is like this series of beads. And the reproducibility between examiners is extraordinarily high for this. Like it's better than most physical examination things that we have. So when you're when you're checking, so 15 cc's is the lower end of normal. So lower than that, maybe think about it. And you must measure the testes themselves and not the scrotum or the fluid around them. So you have to actually sort of pull away from the body a little bit when you're comparing to the speed. So it's that's something I'll work on um, learning at some other point. And as a pearl to you mentioning how much the misdiagnosis in adolescence, Tell I mean, me. if you talk to an adolescent medicine specialist, they always kind of repeat this about why it's so important to be checking testicular volume after puberty and why pediatricians, not us, but some okay. pediatricians okay. aren't very good at doing genitalia exams in adolescence says it's an awkward thing to do. And I imagine that contributes to why it can often be missed. Staying. I'm so thrilled to have our med talent here. <laughs> and for, for those who are just listening and didn't watch, that was a high five in case you didn't hear it. Which we wildly missed. <laughs> no, that's, that's better. It was a deeply depressing high five, but it was a high five nevertheless. And then I, I'm taking too long. So I will just, I think, end with talking about some of the reversible secondary hypogonadism causes. So things that we think about that you can actually address are things like obesity, opioids, sleep apnea, acute systemic illness. Those are all potential reversible causes. The obesity one is particularly interesting. So if you can you can improve testosterone with increasing your daily exercise, with weight loss, and and um, the speaker focused specifically on waist circumference when talking to his patients, which I thought was it's a little bit more satisfying probably to deal with. And then the number I thought was stunning. So in general, over the age of 65, you have this acceleration as you're in the decrease in your testosterone. If you have a BMI over 30, that also causes a decrease. It causes a, a drop in your testosterone as well. So he, he made the point that a BMI greater than 30 is the equivalent of aging 10 to 15 years in terms of testosterone loss. So be like so obesity, a really critical thing that you can actually address to fix testosterone levels or at least make them a little bit higher. So I thought all that stuff was was super high yield. Yeah, and the waist circumference, you know, it's, it, it is, uh, we talked about how BMI is not the greatest marker of actual obesity. So it makes sense that that would be, uh, that that would be part of it. But Paul, I wanted to ask you, cause I, you you were giving us some pearls about this in pre-recording. Do I have to check like PSA and CBC? Like what do I have to do before I start someone on testosterone? Like how much monitoring do I have to do? Cause that seems like it could be a barrier. Terrific questions. Yeah, and I see a lot of this stuff done in, in terms of even doing like screening um, polysomnography in the absence of sleep apnea. So the 2018 Endocrine Society has some safety guidelines about how to deal with this kind of stuff. So you should probably, not, pro not probably, you should check a hematocrit in advance of treatment. The one thing that you worry about with actual treatment is erythrocytosis. Um, but you would check a hematocrit three to six months after initiation of therapy and then annually thereafter. PSA testing you don't have to do unless you've already... Um, open that door. So if the PSA recommendations are the same as for you gonadal men. So if you've already started it, you keep doing it. If not, it should be a shared decision-making conversation, Great. but it's not a requirement prior to starting therapy. And it is not necessary to screen for OSA in the absence of clinical suspicion for it or do lipid testing, RELF-Ts or osteoporosis um, screening unless there's some other reason to be doing it. So you don't have to do those things to necessarily before to, to start treatment. So I, I thought that was actually really helpful too, because I usually the workup that I've seen is really time-consuming and delays therapy for a long period of time as you're trying to make sure everything is perfectly yeah. safe. And I think we maybe worry a little bit too much about that, at least according to the, the Endocrine Society. Folks, my formative years were in the 90s, which means I'm 
a little bit irony poisoned. I often um, revert back to sarcasm as my love language. And so when I'm trying to be sincere, sometimes that can be misinterpreted as, I don't know, withering or sarcastic, which is why I'm thrilled to talk to you about Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestions, which help you reframe your words to be more positive and productive. And this way your team will be on the same page and your projects get done on time. Confident communication suggestions help you build strong relationships and get things done at work. So, for instance, rather than saying something sort of passive, like we may want to consider providing an update, it would tell you to reframe that as we should consider providing an update. And that sounds a little bit more positive, proactive, and will get your team to be more productive. It also helps you reframe negative language, which I need all the help I can get with, to be more solution-focused so you can better collaborate with your team, your coworkers, and your clients. So rather than saying that marketing strategy isn't right, you would say that marketing strategy needs to be different. And it sounds more positive and people feel less quietly judged, which is again, something that I struggle with consistently. I have used Grammarly um, and I've used Grammarly's tone in speeches and in talks that I've given to kind of help me overcome my tendency to revert back to uh, irony. And it's been very helpful to frame my communications as positive and proactive as opposed to um, <laughs> my baseline. So when it comes to work, communication is key. Even if you don't have a writing job, you're still communicating all the time. So Grammarly works everywhere that you do, so every important project gets done on time. Grammarly Premium's tone suggestions take your writing to the next level, keeping you professional as you balance being direct and friendly while finding solutions with your team. Plus, Grammarly has a ton of other great features like advanced spelling, grammar, punctuation, and concise suggestions to ensure your writing is professional, mistake-free, and clear. The right tone can move any project forward when you get it done right with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash tone to download and learn more about Grammarly Premium's advanced tone suggestions. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash tone. Uh, talking about the erythrocytosis. So back uh, back in the day, Stuart and I talked about, we had a, a patient we were taking care of as Cashlack who he kept like, he he had sleep apnea and and then he was on testosterone for testosterone replacement and we were running into problems with his his blood uh, his counts this. being high and they actually did therapeutic phlebotomy for oh. him so that he could because he was one of those patients that just like he swore like he needed his testosterone replacement he felt so much better on it and we wanted to keep him on it and uh, the hematologist was actually doing therapeutic phlebotomy for this guy mm. probably part of it was his CPAP wasn't getting like you know a hundred percent adequate but anyway. You know, so there's sometimes there's outside the box thinking, and <laughs> sure. I thought that was a pretty cool case. Um, I know Stuart, Stuart, and I are very proud of that one. I, I, yeah. I recall it being discussed before. All right, but we have the great Dr. Justin Burke here. Uh, Justin, what would you like to get into? Tell me, you want to talk some frailty? Let's talk about some frailty. Yeah. We can do a quick review. That was one of the first ones this morning at 7 a.m., uh, but it was a very well-attended uh, show by uh, Dr. Dave Rubin from UCLA, a geriatrician. And one of the big takeaways is that frailty, this relatively ambiguous term that means you're vulnerable for poor outcomes because you're aging, there's 67 instruments as of 2016, so this was even outdated, but 67 instruments to measure this ambiguous term of frailty, which seems overwhelming. Um, and documenting frailty can be helpful to not just predict, but also just kind of really classify uh, what risks your patients are at and to facilitate conversations. My takeaways were here are the actual frailty scores that I think I'm going to go away with and forget the other 64. Okay. All right. So score number one is uh, appropriately named the frail score, F-R-A-I-L. It's a self-report question. It's five questions. Frail is an acronym that's basically asking, you know, how they're getting around mm -hmm. and demonstrates very good 
associations with outcomes, including falls, fractures, post-surgery outcomes, hospitalizations, and mortality. So it, it does what it's supposed to do, and it's relatively easy to administer. The one that Dave uses that uh, he said we could call him Dave, but Dr. Rubin uses uh, at UCLA, it's called the clinical frailty score, where basically you uh, have the patient on a scale of one to nine, and they give you descriptions, but uh, one is someone who is extremely fit. Um, so like you, hey, Matthew Watto, exactly, yep. you would be, you would be a one on the clinical yeah. frailty score, whereas nine is closer to like terminally ill. Like the Williams level. <laughs> right. The Williams level. Yeah. I was going to awkwardly pause. <laughs> My slightly older, older co-host, Paul Williams. Yes. This seems pretty well. It's easy to look up and you can, there's some nice documentation. There's some nice tips on how to, how to incorporate into primary care screening. And then there's the deficit accumulation scale, which also has been very um, validated to, to work very well. There's two downsides to the deficit accumulation scale. One, it incorporates up to 70 variables. Uh, which is tough to do on a screening. Uh, a lot. Yeah, that seems yeah. somewhat burdensome. It takes time. The other is it is Canadian. Oh, Ugh. yikes. Yeah. Uh, sorry, but, sorry to our listeners, Five, at least 5% from Canada, Justin. So that's... Oh, I just, I just mean, val- I just mean, I'm not validated in the United States necessarily. It wasn't. Oh, uh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Cause I, I love Canada. Yeah. I don't know Canada's if you, I don't best. know if you have a personal Maple vendetta. Maple syrup and hockey. <laughs> sure. Good, good, yeah. Really, yeah. Leading the stereotype is moose. Yeah, it's yeah. All. yeah. We're doing great. We're building a lot of rapport with Canada. Excellent. Those are my big takeaways from the frailty thing. Did you ever see the movie? Canada? Uh, frailty. I haven't. Uh, oh, I just wanted to ask. Great movie. So I think it's a strange I, brew. What <laughs> What are we gonna do for our patients with frailty? Any Any things there that we should recommend to them that they can do? This is a great example, and I I have, I have two answers. The first answer has six answers. Uh, the first answers are there are some interventions that help prevent the worsening of frailty, debility, and outcomes. And these are the the classic things we think of, like Tai Chi and yoga movement, right. some resistance training. You know, nutritional supplements, occupational therapy can kind of help people get around. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, he said not testosterone. So this aligns with the hypogonadism uh, uh, tour. Synergy. Um, but synergy, actually, uh, the callback to the hypogonadism episode. Um, goal-oriented care is really the other one, and that's going to segue into the second answer, is that when someone has frailty, we're not only just trying to prevent it, but it's really to help kind of approach what would you like to do better, and are those things that can be changed as far as getting around the house, spending time with your family, avoiding uh, going to the hospital, and then trying to have those conversations of what interventions might align with those goals, or using these um, as kind of stepping point for our conversations to have some kind of hard conversations that are really focused on what does the patient want? What are their goals? I like you, that. Uh, palliative, uh, yeah, I like that too, right? Yeah, because if they're like, I just want to be better, it's kind of vague and it's hard. You need like a specific targeted uh, goal that you're looking at. Exactly. Okay. Let's let's get into blood pressure, Justin. So I'm going to throw something at you here. You know, this is, uh, I- I'm sure this is true. We are fantastic at treating blood pressure. Most patients that have high blood pressure are at goal how are we doing overall? Am I right? We're so doing I think great? I think the four of us are probably thriving. Uh, yes. You know, I like to think that the four of us <laughs> are especially are, America's PCP, Dr. Large. Paul Nelson, National Treasure. Sure. Yes. Uh, but so here's here's what I took away from the, the hypertension: a couple of big things about national trends. First, as you all know, in 2017, the new guidelines made stage one hypertension at uh, systolic blood pressure greater than 130. Mm-hmm. So that, in and of itself, increased the prevalence of hypertension, which. You know, yeah. I think it was an oops. I think that was, we, we didn't see that coming. <laughs> um, 
30 million, by the way, yeah, like not a small delta. Not a small amount, yeah. a very large they, number. They, they wanted us to treat more people or just be, recognize it and, and get more people into treatment early. I, I know, I understand where it was coming from. It's all about maximizing, uh, optimizing outcomes, preventing mortality. A lot of the details from the SPRINT trial uh, of really trying to work towards improved outcomes with more aggressive blood pressure. Right. So because we know all this information, I agree with you, Matt, we would think we're doing we're doing stellar, but it turns out uh, that not only are we not doing well at getting our patients' blood pressure under control, but there is a decreasing proportion of patients who are have their blood pressure controlled um, over the past decade, um, even without those those guideline changes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Even if you look at the 140 over 90 goal, we were still not doing that yep. great. So then when you lower it, it when you lower the bar, uh, it it just made it even harder to we're get, to, get to the right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that the, as we talked about, this is all meant to really identify we need to be more aggressive in part because it's a form of primary prevention of preventing right. heart attacks and stroke. Um, we need to be getting people on medications. And in part, you know, one of the slides that she showed from the 2017 guidelines that you saw a lot of foams come out to take photos of was the the algorithm and pathway that basically shows if you have someone in stage one hypertension with a systolic blood pressure greater than 130. So someone coming in mm -hmm. 132 over 82, the recommendation is to do a calculation to look at their ASCVD risk score. And if they're over 10%, you need to be aggressive with their hypertension. And so the recommendation is to start um, BP lowering medication right then and there. And Paul, you pointed out, I think this is a consensus recommendation, not a you know, based in... Right, because this risk calculator was designed to calculate ACBD risk for lipid control in patients 40 to 70 and not for the specific group. And this is not something that was looked at specifically, I don't think so. From I mean, it makes sense that a high-risk patient should have tighter control, but right. makes sense is not the I same mean, as a randomized control trial using yeah. this actual uh, calculation. And what, what we know, essentially what we know about blood pressure is that like lower is better for the most part. Like it's hard to get people too low. So we'll just say lower is better, meaning like closer to normal. And then that... The longer you have high blood pressure, the worse it is. Like right. even talking about dementia prevention and things like that. So it it that's I think that's why we're trying to identify people early and be more aggressive about treating. It all makes sense. Like when you're thinking sorry, not to run away, but if you talk about sort of toxic exposures, whether you're talking about to high blood pressure, to lipids, to hyperglycemia, all of it is like the duration of exposure matters. So like it, it yeah. makes sense, but also again, makes sense is not how we should be building a lot of these recommendations definitively. Like we should hopefully it's being studied and I'm sure it is. Yeah. And I think a lot, you know, kind of does still fall on expert opinion. And, and she was a, a wonderful expert. It was, I didn't mention Dr. Shauna Nesbitt from UT Southwestern, who's the director of their hypertension clinic there. And in vain with her, in line with what you're you're saying, um, she really brought up this life's essential eight uh, uh, concept of eating better, being more active, quitting tobacco, sleeping better, managing weight, controlling cholesterol, managing blood sugar, managing blood pressure, all of these kind of holistic approaches. And one that I admit I was not aware of, it's a study from 2018 that kind of looks at the social factors of um, some of the racial disparities, you know, some of the social determinants of health are a major part of cardiovascular risk. But there's a study in the, the REGARDS study from 2018 that looked at what are the clinical and social factors that are associated with access hypertension rec, uh, risk in black communities. So in, in black communities, we know that they have a higher risk of hypertension. There's a higher risk of 
of heart disease, you know, what's going on there. And one of the biggest mediators of hypertension difference in this study was linked to, to diet, which attributed to about 50% of the access hypertension risk in black men. Um, I think reinforcing this idea that uh, race is not genetic, that, you know, race-based medicine is not good medicine. We need to be approaching it from understanding the social differences. And uh, th this was one that really demonstrated that diet is associated with hypertension, end-stage renal disease, sepsis, cancer mortality, kind of decline, yeah. and attributed especially in some of these racial disparities. All right. Well, we wow. have, uh, wow. check out, uh, we have lots of blood pressure episodes, one with Dr. Von Padden-Assen from UT Southwestern, and then uh, two two recent ones with Jordy, Dr. Jordy Cohen from Penn. Uh, so lots of great stuff. My take home is be more aggressive early on, especially if people are very far off goal and I'm using a lot more combination medications, even at low dose, I find I have just better control that way rather than starting one agent. And then yeah, I feel like I'm getting people under control faster when, totally. I'm, when I'm using combination therapy earlier on. Yeah, I found doing nothing doesn't seem to help as much yes. as, as adding <laughs> stuff. Yeah, don't yeah. just stand there, give them blood pressure medicine. Yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's get into uh, sleep apnea, I know, can sometimes be related to high blood pressure. And I know you uh, and pro. Paul went to oh, a sleep that's... talk and Justin, we should what just test everybody for sleep apnea, right? The home sleep test for everybody. Home sleep test for everyone. That's the ideal. That's the, the utopian dream. But it turns out that that's actually not what our expert, Kimberly Harden, uh, a doctor <laughs> from UC Irvine, <laughs> recommended. She gave a great overview of sleep apnea, insomnia, primary sleep disorders. But I will say the the, the sleep testing uh, of people with, with concern for sleep apnea was one of the big takeaways. And mm. I try to make, um, when I come to conferences, when I'm doing learning, I really try to make it all about me. Yeah, and why I wouldn't think you? That, exactly, thank you. Um, and my takeaway is that my father-in-law should get a home sleep study. Um, my wife should not. Okay. Um, and that's, I'm not a sleep specialist, but uh, I am, they both have a very high pretest probability in my, in my opinion. All so right, is this I, because you don't care about your wife then, or I'm just <laughs> trying to? I care to, very much about okay. my wife. And now I know exactly what to recommend um, for her uh, concerning apneas while she's asleep. Um, so one of the big questions that was really talked about is who should get a home sleep study? And there was really kind of a four point uh, test that that uh, the doctor recommended. First is a high pretest probability for moderate to severe disease. So someone mm -hmm. you think, I'm pretty sure this person has sleep apnea, they're great for a home sleep study. Mm -hmm. The second is that making sure the insurance will actually approve it and she talked about how there is a geographic variation, there's insurance variation. Some will only approve home sleep studies, some will not approve home sleep studies. Yeah. So this is a frustrating factor for, for primary care physicians. Um, making sure they don't have any contraindications, you know, if they're on oxygen, if they're on chronic opioids, if they have neuromuscular disease, if you're concerned about a secondary disorder like narcolepsy, home sleep studies just don't have the technology to kind of identify those, those nuances. Um, and then making sure the patient is actually able to perform this home test and, you know, put stickers yeah. on them. There's different ones. There's different ways to do it. But high pretest probability with insurance, no contraindications and the ability to do it. Well, yeah, so how do we know what high pretest probability is? What a perfect segue into the, the next thing. Uh, it's almost, this is an... Uh, it's just, like Stockton and Malone yeah. over there. We're, we're so close. We're, we're finishing each other's... reference, 30-year-old reference. It's like, we're, <laughs> it's like we're finishing each other's... 
Words. Utah Jazz? <laughs> yeah. Stop Bang. Stop Bang is a wonderful pre-test um, scoring system that we've talked about a lot that she references. Really wonderful to predict someone's likelihood of having obstructive sleep apnea to the point where if you're really scoring high, there's almost 100% chance you have obstructive sleep apnea. But... Who, uh, where was this validated? What population was this? It was mostly older, um, obese men. And so if you are looking at a, um, younger, thin female, the, the stop bane score essentially underestimates sleep apnea mm. in young, thin females. And so it's not a great test for people who are younger, who are people of lower BMI and, um, people who are, are female. And so even if the stop bane is low in that population, there's still kind of a concern, I would say a low pretest probability of obstructive sleep apnea. And that would be a patient uh, like my wife who would really need to get an in-lab sleep test done to rule out sleep apnea. Right. So you're saying if you're witnessing apneas and they're snoring loudly and, you know, they have other symptoms of sleep apnea, but their stop bang is low, you you, you would do an in-lab study for those patients. Absolutely. And yeah. as you mentioned, Chris, oh, when we were beforehand, if someone has a high Epworth sleepness, uh, sleepiness scale score or has other symptoms that you're concerned about obstructive sleep apnea, um, the stop bang probably wouldn't rule them out if they're this phenotype. Can, can I ask you a question? I know we didn't talk about this ahead of time. Let's but try. <laughs> did they talk at all about the procedures for sleep apnea? I know, like, I get a ton of questions about that. Like, oh, patients boy. don't want CPAP. Uh, I, that feels like a can of worms, but... Oh, boy. So they did talk about that. And I'd say there's a lot of different alternative treatments that include things like um, oral... Um, like the oral appliance that is that that is fitted by a dentist, like custom made. That exactly thing. the oral appliance therapy. Um, there are like nasal EPAP devices. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a handful of other con uh, alternative treatments that don't require surgery that can actually be helpful for someone who has a low AHI or someone who has kind of mild sleep apnea. Okay, um, but with. Uh, but those don't work well for someone who has an AHI over 15 where they have more moderate to severe. But you specifically asked me about surgery, so I don't want to ask, I don't want to ignore your question. For the people who have moderate to severe uh, sleep apnea, CPAP's first line, if they don't tolerate that, fail it for whatever reason, surgery can certainly be an option. And there was multiple different types of surgeries that are, uh, that can be considered, one of which that is actually one of the more successful is actually bariatric surgery for someone oh, yeah, who has sense. Um, OBC, which was, uh, I think, uh, fascinating that that is going to be, they're developing new guidelines currently, so they'll be forthcoming within the next year. But that was going to be essentially one of the first-line people with uh, first-line therapies for anyone that has obstructive sleep apnea yeah. and elevated And nowadays BMI. it's probably going to be GLP-1 agonists since uh, it seems <laughs> that they're working so well that maybe met metabolic surgery might be less and less common. Uh, at least in the near future. I don't know. Paul, you were at this too. Anything else to add about sleep apnea, treatment of that, or sleep in general? I, I the, the prevalence, I thought, I mean, I, I think we know this already, but it is OSA sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea specifically is the most prevalent sleep disorder, even above, I think, insomnia. In 935 million adults, 30 to 70. And I think the number that she said was 70% of patients with sleep apnea are undiagnosed, which I thought, again, was a stunning number. Yeah. So again, it's worth asking about the symptoms and thinking about it for... You know, if you're seeing like the, if you're concerned for secondary hypertension or the patient supporting fatigue or sort of all the stuff that we know about, like it just, it's worth thinking about because it's extraordinarily common. Um, but other than that, no, I don't think anything specific to add to the great Dr. Burke summary. The one thing that you actually reminded me that was really great from that was after doing the sleep study, a lot of times it will show oh, right. the central sleep apnea. Yes, you, you did it so articulately. I want to, I want to hear your voice again. 
Um, so central sleep apnea is something that I don't think about, uh, other than like, I feel like there's what Ondine's curse because it's interesting. And then other than that, I, I just like saying that, <laughs> but it's more common than you give it credit for. It's, it's associated. And Matt, I think when we were talking ahead of time, you mentioned like chain soaks respiration. So you see it with a lot of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular disease in general. So it's prevalent in CHF. You see it with patients with atrial fibrillation. You see it in uh, patients after stroke and not necessarily right after stroke. It can be sort of emergent in the, in the years following. There's also a fair amount of opioid-induced central sleep apnea, which is not surprising, but also something I didn't think of very much. So 50% of patients on chronic opioids have central sleep apnea, and that's oh wow, that's a big number, right? Yeah. And then there's this concept of treatment emergent sleep apnea, which again, not anything I ever thought about. Where, um, and we're talking central sleep apnea as a reminder. So five to 15% of patients after they're initiated on PAP or PAP therapy for their obstructive sleep apnea then show signs of central sleep apnea um, after you're treating them for their obstructive sleep apnea. So it's, um, again, apnea, like everything else, much more complicated than I initially thought. So if you have patients like this, I think this is one of the reasons why if you have significant cardiovascular disease, this is someone who probably should have an in-lab study as opposed to the home sleep study because it's a little bit more complicated than you might and think. They, yeah, they could have central coexisting with the obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah. And it's important because there's really great treatment for central sleep apnea now with the phrenic nerve stimulator. She talked about this pivot trial that really demonstrated central sleep apnea can be just very, very well treated with a phrenic nerve st stimulator. We we also talked uh, or planned to talk a little bit about insomnia. So, because I know this is a big deal. Uh, obviously, sleep medications, not something that you want for long term, mm -hmm. uh, specifically the Z drugs, benzodiazepines. I dose benzos for everybody. Right. So, uh, melatonin doesn't work too well and there's, you know, it's not totally benign. So what what was the recommendation there as far as uh, treating insomnia? Absolutely. So first line insomnia treatment was, in fact, not medication, but um, psychotherapy called CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, um, shown to be first line. It can help early on. It's usually, a, a you know, under eight week program. There's more practice parameters. She kind of hinted at that there's going to be insomnia guidelines forthcoming where this is going to be slam dunk yeah. evidence based first line. But uh, CBTI in person or online. She mentioned apps and online therapy works well. Yeah. So, Chris, you uh, tell us tell us about uh, how practical was this to implement at uh, at your version of Cash Lack or, uh, at, or you can mention at, at Cash Lack State at the Cash Lack State. You know, in in our division, uh, we did a great job at being able to send all our social workers to get CBTI um, certification. Um, there are like, if you look online, there are like one or two day courses where they can um, get syllabi and get get teaching, um, and they get some great materials on how to do it. Um, a lot of our social workers who do a lot of counseling, it's been actually great because uh, they can do CBTI and sort of group therapy things. So it can be something a little different uh, if your counselors want to do something outside of like just doing depression, anxiety, things like that. But, you know, we we're also talking about some online resources. Yeah. Like our, our sleep docs at the Cash Lack State have like mentioned, you know, a lot of them may cost money. Like one that's been recommended is Sleepio, S-L-E-E-P-I-O.com. I think there are a couple other ones that I think you saw, Matt. Yeah, the the book, um, I believe it's called "Say Goodbye" or "Say Goodnight to Insomnia" by Dr. Greg Jacobs. It's a it's an older book, but I've read it. I actually sort of went through the course myself because, as I've talked about on the show in the past, I have had some trouble uh, with sleep, particularly like waking up and and not being able to fall back asleep. And I found it was really helpful to like CBTI is basically where you just like sort of teach yourself to retrain your negative thought patterns around sleep. 
and it's it's the most effective therapy. If you don't want to read the book, which is like ten dollars, you can get it on you know everyone's favorite big online retailer, uh, or you can go through. There's a there is an online CB. It's it's cbtforinsomnia.com. This is Dr. J, uh, Greg Jacobs' site, and it's anywhere between like fifty and seventy dollars. There's a couple of different tiers, and you can actually go through. It's a five week course. Uh, to do this. And I, I think it worked really well. And I, I think I've been recommending this to more patients, uh, especially the ones that seem like motivated that say they would like to read something about this. Oh, before we move on, there is a free app from the VA called CBTI app. So oh, if you, nice. I think it's on Android and, um, and uh, Apple oh, devices. Um, okay. Obviously a lot of, a lot of our veterans have sleep issues yeah. and this is a great app. Our trainee listeners and people who have yet to take their boards, so I'm now going to give you three things that are on every single board examination ever is, and the first is that CBT is first-line therapy for insomnia. That will be on every single test that you ever take until you're dead. Um, and then Vibrio. <laughs> if you have liver disease, that's on every single board. <laughs> Scorpion and bites. Hep B serologies. And then you, there you go. I've given you three questions. So memorize your Hep B serologies, tell people with liver disease to not step on shellfish, and CBTI is first-line therapy for insomnia. And you've now passed the boards. You're welcome. Okay. Is hiring challenging? Yes. Do you love a challenge? Also, yes. You need a hiring partner that can help you rise to the challenge you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed is a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools that help you find matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. One of the things the curbsiders love about Indeed is its hiring platform. Indeed's hiring platform does all the hard work for you. It shows you candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Indeed's hiring platform matches you with quality candidates instantly. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring platform delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest 2019. Join more than three million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. So start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offers good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash internal medicine. That's indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Justin and Chris, so I want to switch gears slightly here. Chris, you went to a press briefing on firearm safety that the ACP did because you're here as official press, right? So that's that's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, That's right. (laughs) Tell us about that. No, I think it's interesting that all our uh, major organizations are really looking into this and doing like sort of a coalition thing. I was at AAP pretty recently and they also had similar discussions on this. I mean, really everyone's sort of looking at this as a really big public health crisis. Um, I think the big thing out of the, out of the press briefing was talking about how important the ACP thinks that making sure that we educate our um, our physicians to be able to um, to talk to patients, sort of be non-judgmental, and then how to talk about safety around firearms. You know, they, they've actually have this brand new online hub for education, which has resources. They made all the annals publications for free for access. What I found interesting was they also have this um, a recent forum with experts that sort of has um, all this practical advice on how to talk to patients in a special way. 
Um, but I think they also uh, rightly re recognize that talking to patients with education is one important thing because it's difficult for primary care providers who may not know a lot about guns to like even feel comfortable enough to talk about it. But also, it's, it's also you also need to talk from a legislative way. And um, they also have this tool, online toolkit, which have things like letter, letter templates on how to uh, talk to congressmen and things like that. So I think it was just really the importance of the press briefing really was to show that the ACP really and many other organizations find that it's really important to talk about firearm safety. And this is coming from like Sue Bornstein, who's actually apparently a gun owner. You know, she, yeah, she sure. understands this. Um, but, you know, helping out, you know, doctors and providers like feel more comfortable being able to talk about these things and how to interact in, in whether with, with patients or with um, um, government entities, um, I think is important. So, And Justin, uh, from a sim, like, you know, in the legislative arm uh, where it touches the clinical medicine, you had some stuff you wanted to talk about as well. Yeah. One of the more inspiring talks that I went to was caring and, and advocating for patients involved in the justice system by Dr. Newton Kinden, Dr. Scott Allen, and Dr. Emily Wong. And similar, it talked about the policies of how mass incarceration is a is a bit of a public health issue now and that, you know, providers need to, physicians need to know about um, this. There's a great ACP policy position paper that came out with 22 policy recommendations about caring for people who are incarcerated. Um, the uh, speakers talked about the porous nature of uh, jails and prisons and that prison health and jail health is community health, is public health, because people are coming in and going all the time. Um, and it is a public health uh, issue in part because active incarceration worsens chronic medical conditions, increases risk of hospitalization. But one of the core policy components that they talked about is this new, um, it's called a Medicaid 1115 waiver, where states for the first time can apply to have Medicaid cover people while they're incarcerated. And in fact, California recently put in one of these waiver applications that got approved. And so for anyone in California, up to 90 days prior to their release, they are now Medicaid eligible. And so internists can be going into the, the jails and prisons to provide care. It's going to be something that uh, tons of other states are doing to get Medicaid dollars. And so for internists, it's going to be something where I think we're going to be caring for these patients more and more, have Me the opportunities Wait, to. Wait, Medicaid or Medicare? Or Medicaid. Medicaid. So it'll be state level. Right. So it will be state State and it would be while they're still incarcerated That's right. and, and it would carry over once they're released as well. That's right. And one of the big goals is to kind of help with longitudinal care. So yeah. you're getting people hooked into appointments. You're getting people started on hep C treatment. You're getting people on medications for opiate use disorder uh, to make that transition, which is a very vulnerable time for right. people on reentered the yeah. community, making sure that they have all the healthcare services they need. Because right, like the mortality after release is so much higher because so much higher. The, you, there's this big gap in sort of the care that you're receiving. Receiving. So this might actually bridge that gap. That sounds huge. It's I want to say episode 155 or 65, something like that, uh, was medicine in incarceration. And with Emily Wong with was Dr. one of Emily our Wong. guests. And uh, we talked about that problem where sometimes patients are actually getting better care and have access exactly. to insulin and meds when they're in in uh, incarcerated. And then when they leave, they, they lose access and where they don't know what they were getting because it was just being given to them. They had no- right. Such a passive exactly. process. Like, yeah, yeah. It was a passive process. So- That's really uh, exciting. It's definitely great. check that out if you're interested. And uh, to round things out here, I just wanted to mention, I went to an aortic stenosis talk. Uh, oh, no, wait. 
you know what, Chris? I want to go to your. I want to okay. go to your phenol phenobarbital. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, alcohol I mean, withdrawal, like to totally change gears. Inpatient <laughs> alcohol withdrawal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And I actually went to a lot of talks this time, which uh, you know, if we follow you follow us on Twitter, I, I, we might post some of that stuff about like pain control and OUD and stuff like that. And we also obviously have a great um, great series on on addiction medicine. Yeah. Um, and honestly, that's that's just an area that I don't have. Um, I'm still learning a lot about. Um, I think one of the more interesting things that was, were dis was discussed was about um, alcohol withdrawal syn uh, syndrome in, um, well, treating alcohol withdrawal while in the inpatient yeah. setting. Um, I think several years ago, I first learned about using phenobarb uh, with like Josh Farkas over on Palm Crit and, mm -hmm. and uh, EM Crit. And, you know, phenobarb has been traditionally used long time before the use of benzodiazepines. And then it's, it fell off favor and looks like, you know, we're sort of going back to using them more often. Um, even at my institution at the Cashlack State, you know, we actually have f protocol for in use yeah. of phenobarb early on, which, we, uh, which you know, due to some of these studies, uh, possibly looking at decreased use of benzodiazepine and some other outcomes. But I think one interesting thing about the discussion is really during the discussion in our session, uh, they were saying like a lot of these studies actually were small retrospective study studies, and they really only compared phenobarb to either placebo or to symptom-triggered benzodiazepines instead of, you know, some of these patients may actually need like long-acting benzodiazepines, which mm -hmm. has sort of been... Um, the care for some of our more uh, our patients who are withdrawing uh, a little harder. Yeah. Patients with more, right, like you, uh, a fixed dose Correct. benzodiazepine regimen rather than a symptom triggered. And so, so comparing it to that now. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think one of the cool takeaways from that was she was telling us about this phenomenal trial because I know Paul loves names of phenomenal. trials. Sure did. But it's, it's spelled like a cardiology trial. <laughs> it's called it's spelled P H E N O M A N A L trial. So hopefully that'll come up soon. But it's each of the arms are actually comparing uh, phenobarb with um, long-acting benzodiazepines. So we can look forward to maybe having some. Um, better studies uh, that uh, might reflect the what we're doing now. And we looked this up because uh, it, it's not just in the intensive care. It's it's uh, patients were recruited from either the ICU, the wards, or the in, or the emergency department. At least in the pilot study of the phenomenal trial. So that this might be something that touches hospital medicine as well. And uh, I'm interested in it. So Dr. Joji Suzuki, who we had on our inpatient alcohol withdrawal trial, he was that was a treatment that he really likes. The it's institution dependent, and he recommended that you just follow whatever protocol is is in place in your institution. But maybe if this comes out and the evidence is good, it's going to be you're going to see it in more and more institutions. So keep an eye out for that. To round out this day one, man, we had a lot of we had a lot of good stuff here today. Uh, to, to round out this day one, I went to an aortic stenosis talk, very technical talk, a lot of uh, the imaging findings um, for for aortic stenosis and and how to recognize those. But some of the stuff that that I think would be interesting to our audience is just thinking about the approach to valve, what type of valve the person gets, and she was talking about how. There's, she had a slide that was like, okay, some patients might get a SAVR, which is like the surgical mm -hmm. aortic valve, and then they might get a TAVI, which is like the trans aortic valve implant. <laughs> I remember learning these studying for boards and I was so good at them and now yeah. the so TAVI, yeah. TAVI and TAVR are interchangeable terms, she said. Um, but she said like some patients, you only want them to need one surgery. So if they're gonna get a valve surgery, they're now looking at like, okay, if you put in a surgical valve, it has to be sewn into place and that ring of sutures 
makes it, it usually a smaller valve area than if someone has a TAVI. So uh, we know that patients can get a TAVI and then another transaortic valve inside that, and then maybe even another, this is like Ru Russian nesting dolls type like stuff. Like a turducken. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the turducken method. Yeah. And she said, so some patients might get a saver and then a TAVI, and then could they get another TAVI? She said, or the third option is, do they start with the TAVI, which lasts about eight to 10 years, and then they get a surgical valve, which lasts could last up to 20 years if it's a mechanical valve, and then they get, when that fails, they put another valve inside the surgical valve. A little saver sandwich. Yeah. And uh, so I don't, I don't know. But she was saying that those are, those are all things that are being looked at right now. And a lot of it depends on age. But if someone gets a TAVI, it's about an eight to 10 year, you know, life on that valve. As far as we know right now, that's about as long as the data goes out from the, the trials that were done with those implantable valves. And uh, you know, I think that's that's something that's interesting. Um, the other thing I was going to say, just because you know, Paul, you know, I love LP little A, just sure. because we talked it's, about it. With it's super uh, actionable. There's a lot you can do about Dr. it. Dr. Aaron Mikos. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe in the near future, we're still it's, waiting on these mm -hmm. outcomes data from the LP little A drugs. If, if some butts were candies, nuts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> but she she did mention that people with LP little A tend to calcify their native valves much faster, mm -hmm. um, as do people with bicuspid valves. Um, and just talking about how much calcium burden is on a valve is something that they can estimate it from echo, but also they can actually do like cardiac CT and they can also give a valve calcium score, aortic valve calcium score. And that factors into some of the recommendations for severity and things. So the, as far as the severity goes, you really just have to look it up, uh, to, to, to categorize your person, but that is, I, I think that's something just to keep in mind. Um, if you're following your person in primary care, Paul, because I know this probably comes up all the time, like sure. your person has mild or moderate or severe, how often do you follow them? She said it's very individualized. It sounds like you can kind of make it up, Great. but the <laughs> less <laughs> the less severe it is, the longer you can wait between. So if it's really severe and they're symptomatic, you might be getting, uh, you know, they're probably going to be getting worked up for surgery. But if it's really severe, every six to 12 months is reasonable for echo. If it's moderate, it might be every year or two. And if it's just mild, three to five years would be reasonable. So and eventually we'll be doing prophylactic tabbers so that we can do yeah. the saver, save I after yeah. I've lost track. The the other question that we wanted uh, from her was like, so what are we doing with antiplatelets and anticoagulation sure. and valves? And she's like, it's all over the place. So basically, <laughs> although, you know, although didn't you say she, something about like if they're on oral anticoagulation with a VKA for after a while, she'll actually start an aspirin on them? Yeah, this was a highly expert opinion, uh, but she said that for mechanical valves, once they get into that latter like part of the valve life, like the 15 year and on, even if they're, they're still beyond warfarin, vitamin K antagonist, but she will actually add an aspirin on top of that, be, assuming that the valve is, is, you know, forming, you know, changes that might increase the risk of thrombosis. But yeah, it's highly individualized. I, I have a friend uh, who's a cardiac surgeon. I asked him about like some of this stuff and he's like, if you call a cardiologist and ask them what to do for a valve, they're going to call me and I'm going to tell them what to do. So uh, for our primary care colleagues, just call your, if you have access to the surgeon that put the valve in, ask them what they want to be done mm -hmm. because it's all expert opinion right yeah. now for the most part. 
Um, there's there's newer and newer valves are coming out. They're trying to like go with lower INRs or ones that can get by with just you know aspirin, whatever. Sure, but that's it's constantly evolving, and we're not going to be able to keep up with it uh, as general internists. So ask your friendly neighborhood thoracic surgeon mm. and uh, see what they want to do. I listen to a thoracic surgery podcast if there is one. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, thoracic surgery podcast. All right. So uh, with that, we'll wrap it up for, for day I one I want to say one more thing, Doc. Wada. Okay, uh, sure, sure. So lest you think this is all purely clinical stuff or even policy stuff, I went to a wonderful workshop oh, yes, about yes. Uh, career and promotion um, that actually featured mm. one Dr. Matthew Wado as well yes. as Dr. Tracy Henry from Emory and Avital Glasser, curbsider's favorite from OHSU. I, I won't go too deep into it because I don't want to embarrass you, but it was a way about talking about promotion through, quote, non-traditional methods. So a lot about making advocacy and your passions count in terms of your promotion and making your institution sort of recognize the work that you do, which may not be the necessarily traditional scholarship, but it's still valid and still important. You and, and Avi talked a lot about sort of social media and how that's gaining some legitimacy and how to talk about that and how to document it, including your CV. So again, unless you think the ACP conference is pure clinical, there are actually some really great professional stuff. And I just want to call it Matt doing a great job this morning. Thank um, you, Paul. Yay, Matt. And uh, everybody at this table either has been or will be promoted based on uh, things they're doing on social media, digital scholarship, uh, one project or another. So I, I do think it is it is something. But yeah, anyway, let's let's end there. We will come back uh, with some more pearls later in the conference. But that's this is a good wrap for day one. This is our second recap session, but it's the it's the last day of the conference. Justin is going to be later today, furiously recapping everything uh, on the recapper. on the main stage. He's a professional recapper, but he's lent us his services. So we have him for a little while here. Uh, we are going to go through a bunch of stuff. Mm. Um, starting off, uh, Paul, our perioperative chief, Dr. Avital Oglasser, she talked about, what were we calling it, periatrics, perioperative geriatrics? When you say I, we, that's something you were saying. Okay, yeah, fine. Sure. So it's perioperative geriatrics. She was talking about how this is almost becoming its own field within perioperative medicine. And she talked about physiologic reserve in patients, specifically patients with frailty. Do you, you want to riff on that a little bit? I mean, <laughs> sure. I mean, I can tell you what she means by that. So talking about, you know, it, she she made the example that a 27-year-old who has um, hemorrhagic shock from a trauma is going to probably have a better outcome than someone who is a million years old, not maybe millions overstating, but say in their, in their 70s or 80s, who does not have a lot of physiological reserve, who's, had, who's lived a lot of life, and as a result does not have the same sort of capacity to bounce back from things like that. So she did make the point that while... Age itself is just a number evaluating patients for frailty, and there are other sessions um, about this, and we, we talked about this earlier, can be useful in terms of prognosticating and sort of assessing someone's overall perioperative risk, which goes to the larger theme of her talk about talking to the patient is probably an important thing to do, and it's not just a matter of looking at absolute numbers. And talking about the physiologic reserve, this almost reminded me of like stable angina where like someone is doing everything they can to maximize their blood flow at rest. And then when they exercise, they just don't have any reserve left. She said these patients that are frail just to like get through their day, they're like using everything their body can can like do just to just to get them through their day. So then suddenly you put them under the stress of a surgery and they're not going to do as well. And, uh, you know, she also said, you, the peri as, as you told us the other day, Justin, you know, choose a perioperative risk calculator. You gave us a couple ones um, that, that we said, I guess, earlier in this same episode. And so people can use any of those they want when they're and talk to their patients about this physiologic reserve idea and that it's going to be harder to get through a surgery if you're if you're older and have frailty. 
just a quick hit, but actually, you know, since we're talking about ischemic heart disease, and I hope you appreciate that transition. Um, I do. <laughs> for the perioperative risk assessment, I think so often we think about an ischemic event um, as one of the reasons for doing our perioperative risk strength. But actually, heart failure has far worse outcomes um, perioperatively and post-surgically than, you know, than worrying about sort of an ischemic event actually happening. So I just, we should worry about all of it. But I, I do think that we, she spent a fair amount of time talking about looking at LV dysfunction because the yeah. worse the LV function, the worse the, the perioperative outcomes are in there. You may even be a little bit more aggressive in terms of considering echocardiography. So if someone has a change in symptoms that's relatively recent, or even if they've been stable, if they've not had an echo in the past year, it's maybe not a bad idea to sort of check one if you have the time and the convenience to do so, just because the LV dysfunction really is an important predictor of how you're going to do postoperatively. Yeah, yeah. And the and we we always think about like the periop testing. Avi's made this point many times about how the echo for the anesthesiologist is very important. They're if they see any right heart failure, pulmonary yeah. hypertension, that's a big a big flat red flag for them. So they may use it even if if we think it might not change our management, it may change theirs. Uh, Chris and Justin, let's go to you guys. We talked to Joel Toff and we talked to a bunch of uh, nephrologists recently on the show about uh, blood pressure and things. Tell, tell us a little about the nephroprotection lecture that you guys went to. Um, I guess blood pressure yeah. control, should we be aggressive yeah. there? What should we be doing? You want to talk about the book? Yeah, I think, you know, he really had three big categories of uh, treatments that you can do other than ACE inhibitors and ARBs. One was aggressive blood pressure control. One was alkali therapy. One was SGLT2 inhibitors, our, our, sure. our friend. Specifically, the aggressive blood control, uh, blood pressure control, is some new data that has really come out that shows even if someone does not have proteinuria with chronic kidney disease stage three to five, aggressive blood pressure control does have positive outcomes. Um, and this is based on a, a multi-center trial or a, a meta-analysis of trials that was published in March of 2023, including Sprint, Accord, MDRD, but that essentially demonstrated uh, the probability of kidney failure decreases if a patient has more aggressive blood pressure control. By aggressive, we're talking like systolic plus the 120. Is that right? I think that's the goal is I think, you know, it is really trying to just make it so that it's not um, almost just normal, probably probably normalizing. I, I mean, Paul, we've talked about this. Essentially, nor, uh, lower is better with blood pressure. I, th I do think it probably matters how you get there. Uh, so I, I imagine they're not recommending you just like get the blood pressure lower with a tenolol. Therapeutic uh, lobotomy, yeah. Yeah, therapeutic <laughs> lobotomy. So they're, I, I'm not sure how much they got into the weeds about it, but I, I imagine this is like thinking patients that are on the the frontline therapies and the, you know, we, we talk about MRAs, we talk about SGLT2 now right. helps with blood pressure, finerenone. Um, were they specific about that kind of thing? Not so much with blood pressure. I think we can talk about some of those other medications. I think by looking at these different trials, they all had different definitions of low blood pressure. So again, Sprint Accord, MDRD yeah. had different cutoffs. But the the as your to your point, the big picture was um, more aggressive is better. And so for people who we want to continue to protect their kidneys and put off dialysis or kidney failure, blood pressure is really something that we need to be more on top of. And we've talked about this. Repeatedly, it's just it's so easy to fall into therapeutic inertia and think, well, this is close enough, and and maybe this is one more reason to not fall into that trap. So, Chris, I'm going to set you up here, and I I'm sure I'm right about this. When I start someone on an SGLT2 inhibitor, I'm going to tell them that their their GFR is going to get better for sure right away. <laughs> no, totally not. Uh, I, I think Joel also said this uh, when you guys talked to him as well. But you know, there's actually going to be a dip in your GFR as soon as you start it, and so. Uh, 
don't check that <laughs> that cam afterwards because you're going to see it drop. But the the thing to know is, you know, even though you you get like a three to six dip in GFR, and they and they even quote it as much as thirty percent, uh, it's you'll actually see it start first, but then it slows the long long term. Uh, uh, well, it gives you long term uh, kidney preservation. So even though you have your initial dip in GFR, it'll be much slower in your dip versus if you just didn't do anything without protection, you'll, in the placebo arm on some of the studies that they were talking about, you'll just continue to see it go down. So yeah, um, even though it'll, they'll cross, just right. don't check it. Yeah. This feels like, this is a tortured analogy, but this feels like the, the tobacco cessation thing where you're going to have a steady decline in your lung function no matter what, but the tobacco, it's, it's much, much steeper. Um, Maybe this is a bad analogy. I'm going to walk it back and, and just forget what you said this. <laughs> but, I get it. But I do I do think that uh, we, we talked about this with Joel, just sort of SGLT2s. He's not routinely checking at the, like, it's not like an ACE inhibitor or a diuretic where you check within two weeks or four weeks after starting it. Uh, you, you don't necessarily have to check uh, afterwards. And this is what our expert, David Ross, who did the presentation also said. He does not check in the first few months after starting someone. Okay. And then alkaline therapy, this is in the guidelines. We talked about this with Joel, how there have been negative trials that are well done, but there's also been a lot of positive trials with alkaline therapy. Joel was advocating fruits and vegetables. It seems like that actually can help with this problem. But what what do the experts say about that? Yeah, I think our expert really did kind of double down on the KDGO guidelines that talked about how a target uh, bicarb of 22 to 24, at least in some studies, really has shown a decrease in dialysis inception or mm -hmm. decreasing people who need to go on dialysis. And there are certainly side effects of the sodium bicarb, most notably things just like GI upset and bloating. Yeah. And the standard dosing, 650 milligrams three times a day was he was, you know, saying this is it's easy, it's done, but it's three times a day dosing. Yeah. So there's some yeah. there's some pharmacy burden. And to your point, which maybe you're about to say, the times when the bicarb might dip down under target, but then self-resolve with just kind of going back to the regression of the means um, might mean that this is something you only really want to think about if there's consistent uh, bicarb that that is low, yeah. below 22 or below 20. I but, think that was Joel's point about why, or hypothesis about why maybe some of the trials were negative is because maybe the people in uh, in in the arms, like they had a temporary drop in bicarb that recovered just spontaneously. So therefore, they, did, they weren't going to need treatment anyway. So thinking about that. I, well, I do want to add one caution to using bicarb too, because I've definitely seen some of my own patients come back from nephrology with it more. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted yeah. to go to this talk. But, you know, our heart failure patients often have CKD, and so really have to use caution in those patients due to edema and all the excessive sodium that you might see with sodium yeah. bicarb. So check out our recent episode with Joel. Um, it was a CKD update episode, which we went into way in depth about this. But Paul, that was a recent episode, but way back, Paul, mm -hmm. maybe episode 21 or 22, in-flight emergencies. We talked oh, to a, yeah. chief res a chief resident who had delivered a baby on a plane. Um, and uh, Paul, did you learn anything in this in-flight emergencies talk? Yeah, it was given by Jason Napolitano out of UCLA, um, and I it, it gave me a lot of fresh nightmare fuel, so that was great. I appreciate that, Dr. <laughs> Napolitano. Um, I think there are a couple of new things for me to worry about, and so he 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 spoke initially. There, there's a long list of things that we should worry about that can happen in flight. A lot of them, as we talked about in the show, can be sort of alcohol or, or medication related. Um, Cabin pressure changes uh, are something that I have not thought too much about, but apparently they can cause wound dehiscence if you're not careful. So if you have someone with a major Yikes. recent abdominal surgery, maybe don't throw them on a plane right away um, because the last thing you want is, is stitches popping open. He also mentions that you know because of the changes that happen in flight, 
patients, um, well, in general, you, you can see your PaO2 drop by about 25 millimeters of mercury when you're up in the air for so people who have normal functioning, good reserve, like you're not going to feel that you might be a little bit more tired, but it's not going to make all that big a difference. But if you have severe COPD, it can cause um, an acute decompensation, which which feels bad. Um, you can have this hypobaric hypoxemia, um, which is what you don't want to happen to someone who has bad lungs, not bad lungs, um, but someone who has sick lungs, has sick lungs uh, while flying. Um, he also talked a, a little bit about sort of the practical considerations for supplemental oxygen. I won't get too deep into it, but there's things that pulmonologists can do to determine who needs supplemental oxygen, who doesn't. But you can't just drag your your oxygen tank onto the plane. That's a because that it's a bomb because it might explode. <laughs> um, so it, if you patients may need oxygen concentrators, which only give you about three liters um, per minute equivalent, and those require either frequent battery changes if you're going to be flying. So you need a lifespan that's at least one and a half times the length of your flight is the recommendation if you're going to be flying with the oxygen concentrator. And then he also gave a couple of conditions that probably you shouldn't be flying immediately thereafter. So for instance, if you've had a recent myocardial infarction, at least three weeks after that, um, before you start flying again, two weeks after stroke, three weeks after pneumothorax makes sense. Um, and then you shouldn't be flying if you're greater than 35 weeks gestation with pregnancy. Um, also, something that would not Which have occurred to me. That patient, uh, the the one that uh, Angelica Zen delivered, was not clearly not following yes. that. Yeah. Well, and is that because you might deliver on the plane? I think that's exactly good? it. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's like the baby's going to come <laughs> flying out because of cabin pressure changes. <laughs> but if, um, but if someone has a recent sickle cell crisis, that's also something to at least mm -hmm. be mindful of because the oxygen changes can certainly um, potentially precipitate that. And then the last thing I'm going to mention is this air rage, which I think we've all been reading about, because as the human population just becomes increasingly more awful, um, people are getting angry on flights, they're yelling yeah. at people, they're, they're, these are not surprisingly often alcohol-related. Why should we as physicians care? Because you may at some point be called upon to consider chemical sedation for these patients, which sounds extreme until you think about the patient or the passenger who punched a window um, at altitude and caused a decompression of 35,000 feet. So it's, it's, it can be a problem, and if you're talking about administering medications, you may at least be asked, and I know ethically it feels kind of weird. Um, there, there was a case of someone who actually got, I think it was 10 milligrams of diazepam, who was intoxicated and violent, and strapped into the airplane. Um, you know, had seatbelts and stuff tied around the guy just to kind of keep everybody else safe. And probably the guy ultimately passed away from positional asphyxia. So just because of the way he was positioned, and then you add benzos to the mix of alcohol, um, and and unfortunately the patient had a had a bad outcome. So it's. Not great guidance as to what to do if this happens, but just know that as a physician, you may be involved in this. So at least be mindful. And do they have IM benzos on board? Like, do they have, I, they I think there are feet out of van? Typically benzos involved in the, the flight emergency kit. He did go through the list of stuff that's typically involved that, which, and they, the ingredients and things in that have not changed for like decades at this well, point. I think, yeah, we, we talked about was it an emergency kit. And then there's sometimes an advanced airway emergency kit too. You have to ask yeah. for if you want. Well, this was, yeah, I, I have the list from our, our episode 19 with Angelica Zen. Also, she was a chief resident at UCLA. I believe, uh, I believe this speaker, uh, he hooked us up with her yeah. actually back yep. way back when, um, I don't see it on here, but we can, I'll, I'll, I'll try to look up a more recent list for the show notes to put I it in I always there. bring on intramuscular benzos onto for yourself. the airplane, just in right. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I have a whole, yeah. basically pharmacy cabinet in my bag, but it's obviously... <laughs> All right. But it's for me. It's not for passengers. Well, let's leave the plane. Let's get let's get into some hospital medicine pearls. I know we just had a hospital medicine recap because we had a team at SHM, but I know some of these pearls don't overlap. So, Justin, I'm going to set you up here. 
Uh, when you're in the hospital and let's say you think someone has like a pneumonia and, uh, of course I'm going to want to give that vancomycin first. That's the most important. Just get that in there. <laughs> Beta lactams, they can wait. Am that's, I, am I right or am I wrong? The vancomycin is the bid drug. Unfortunately, you are, you are incorrect, Matthew Otto. And, uh, I appreciate that setup. The, uh, recent study by Amoa and colleagues from clinical infectious disease 2022, um, hospital acquired pneumonia while we'll often treat with vancomycin and uh, a beta-lactam. Um, a beta-lactam going in first has actually been shown to reduce mortality by 50%, 50% improvement in mortality, both wow. at 48 hours and at 78, uh, and at seven days later. Uh, and the thought is that because if you have gram-negative sepsis, if you have gram-negative um, uh, uh, bacteremia, this is really an urgent time to antibiotics. Yeah. important. And unless they have MRSA, like, you know, the, these beta-lactams are going to be killing lots of gram-positives too and most cases. Absolutely. So. I'm so confused because I thought vancomycin was the most powerful antibiotic known to man. I just, this doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it, it totally messes with your mind. And so you yeah. might say, you know, well, uh, what about if a patient has MRSA? Are those patients more likely to die if they're getting beta-lactams first? If there's a delay in vancomycin, how does that affect patients with MRSA? And in fact, administration of vancomycin prior to a beta-lactam was not associated with improved survival in patients that ultimately had MRSA. Mm, so you're not, even if you have a high suspicion of MRSA, delaying the vancomycin to get the beta-lactam in first um, did not have any any negative effects. It's, it's yeah. good beta-lactam first. And some hospitals, I think, are now starting to make that a part of the order set where if Which those antibiotics go yeah. together, beta-lactam Because first. This, this came up, I, I sort of... Uh, I'm, I'm glad we have evidence for this, but I, I've had nurses ask me that, you know, you're in a rapid response or something, you order the antibiotics, they come up from pharmacy, they're like, which one do you want me to give first? I have one line. And, you know, I think this is very clear that we should give the beta-lactam. So uh, before love, the, love this pearl. And we should mention, it was Dr. Bradley Sharp from UCSF. He was the best. This was like a comedy show disguised as a He's done this three update. years in a row. I, I didn't see his talk this year, but the last two years I saw, he's he's fantastic. I'm a fan. He was he's great. Huge. He There were so many great... He, he was sharing pearls like a hippie commune at a seaside retreat. <laughs> okay, I don't get the reference, but... Because they share because it's a commune and they're uh, by the seaside. Uh, there's a lot of pearls. Are there? Wow. That's pretty good, right? That it, was pretty good. That was not. I mean, just I, I'm pretty proud of that, actually. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hard <laughs> you okay. can use that later, Paul. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. Uh, time... <laughs> Time-wise, Justin, <laughs> let's get one more pearl from this. Um, I'm gonna. Pro can I prompt you? If if I want to bring the, make the patient feel like they really know what's going on, what is? Has anyone looked at like does that actually help? Because I patients are like I don't know who's taking care of me. I don't know when they're coming by. And you're like good and slam the door. <laughs> this is this is a great question and what a great QI project for every resident or early faculty member right. in the hospital. Um, there's a study from a General uh, Journal of General Internal Medicine by Abid and colleagues that basically demonstrated having standardized hospitalist information cards that explained how to reach your attending and when people are coming around. This is when we round. This is when we put in orders. This is when we are doing discharges or seeing new patients. Um, giving a card like that with that information to the patient improved patient satisfaction, uh, both in a pre-post analysis and comparison to groups that didn't have the card. It increased, quote, top box excellent patient satisfaction from 50 to 70 percent, increased the likelihood of excellent patient satisfaction by 2.3 times. People really liked 
um, understanding how the process worked and understanding how they could contact their team if they had questions. And this is like an easy thing. It doesn't it doesn't take a lot of effort. Uh, personally, I I have business cards printed up with Paul's uh, information, cell right. phone number, home address, questions. email address, <laughs> and I just say this is America's primary care physician. He can handle anything you need. All right, so I want to move on uh, and and get to Paul. You the genitourinary symptom of menopause. You went to a talk. Former curbsiders guest, yeah, Doctor yeah. McNeil, former favorite, well, still current favorite, Doctor Melissa McNeil, um, now at Brown. So it, it, great talk, and, and I'll just I'll go sort of broad strokes for this. Um, but we talked about the genitourinary syndrome of menopause, uh, and basically this is this reflects a deficiency of estrogen on the entire female genital tract. So this includes the vagina, the labia, the urethra, the bladder. The, the points to be made here is that a lot of patients who are experiencing this are not going to be currently seeing a gynecologist. This is the domain of an internist because these patients may have aged out of cervical cancer screening. They may not have a need for contraceptive management, so they may not have a gynecologist that they're, they're talking to about these symptoms, but they may not also volunteer them. So the, the prevalence in terms of reported symptoms is wide. It's between like 27 and 84% of postmenopausal women are, are reporting these symptoms, which can include things like vaginal dryness, painful sex, urinary burning, or dysuria. Uh, urinary incontinence, vaginal discharge counterintuitively, um, burning or bleeding. So the the point being is that you have to ask about these symptoms and you you should also ask about sexual dysfunction and then specifically the impact on quality of life, like how much does this bother you? And particularly patients with cancer history. So um, breast cancer is, is of particular importance or gynecologic cancers, obviously asking about where the cancer was, when it was diagnosed, what treatments the patients underwent, because even things like aromatase inhibitors can cause um, significant symptoms of these, of these um, genital urinary syndromes of, of menopause. From an exam standpoint, you know, you're not, you're not doing a pap necessarily, so you don't need to visualize the cervix, but you should look, obviously, that's, I think, where a lot of... Um, <laughs> <laughs> learners perhaps fall down. Um, externally, you'll see things like reduced tissue volume and so narrow introitus. Um, you, you'll be using a small speculum for this. You'll be losing using lots of lubricant, and you may see things like loss of vaginal rugae. You may see pale vestibular tissue. There's a lot of other findings that you can you can see with this. In terms of labs, I thought this was interesting. Most women with GSM have a have a pH greater than 5.0 on a wet mount. If you if you do one, you'll probably see more than one white blood cell uh, per high powered field because there is some inflammation there. And you'll also see immature vaginal epithelial cells with these large nuclei that have a, a name that I have immediately forgotten. So sorry. Um, and then the treatment, it's probably a lot of time was spent talking about this. You, you have the option of using um, moisturizers and lubricants. There's water-based lubricants and oil-based lubricants, all of which have their own potential uh, pitfalls. So the water-based lubricants can cause epithelial damage. The oil-based can erode condoms, um, importantly. Um, you can increase sexual activity. That's where it's recommended. Um, Dr. Neil nailed me the point a couple of times. If you don't use it, you lose it. So it's by you can do sort of do, do, do gentle stretching on your own. But if, if you can remain very sexually active, that is also encouraged. Pelvic floor PT can also be helpful. And more fun. And more fun, for sure. Um, if done correctly, at least. <laughs> and then we spent a lot of time uh, discussing vaginal estrogen and, and the different formulations therein. So there's the topical cream, there is a pill that can be used, there is a ring that can be um, placed every 90 days or so. And each has their the different benefits. They, it's importantly, it's the one that the patient likes the best and the one that insurance covers because there's yeah. a lot of insurance variability. Um, but these these medications are extraordinarily effective. They improve quality of life. They can improve urgent incontinence significantly. They can reduce recurrent UTIs. Patients just feel better. 
um, using them. And they're very, very safe. There's no, there are very few contraindications to them. Most patients qualify for them. We just don't, they're, they're widely underprescribed. The only things to be thoughtful about are your patients who have the history of malignancy. Not, maybe not the only thing, but probably the most important thing is estrogen sensitive cancers. You want to be a little bit yeah. um, careful about and make sure that you're talking to the patient's oncologist. If you have any kind of concerns, just making sure that you're, you're okay to do what you're going to do. But for the most part, patients um, would qualify for them and, and would do well with them. So just don't, don't be shy about using them. Um, yeah. Don't be shy about asking about this condition exactly because right. it's, I, I think when we've talked to other experts about this, if people are not often volunteering this information, so it's something you have to ask about if you're, if you're going to be helping patients with this. All right. So switching, switching gears here, Paul, a friend of the show, Dr. Amy Oxentenko did another updates on gastroenterology. They ask her back every year to do this because she is fantastic. Best, yeah. Yes. And um, it, so she talked about two, two fun studies. So Justin and Chris, you guys are pediatricians. You're, you're familiar with the Bristol stool scale? Very oh, familiar. Yes. Yeah. So the, so it's the three and fours. That's where you want your stools to be. These are like the sausage, like the softer, ones, I think. It's really one in five, I feel like, that you want to stay away from. One in five, yeah. okay. Those are the ones you don't yeah. want. Yeah. yeah. You don't want so one is like pebbles. One is pebbles. Five raisins. is like, five is like all water or five something? Five is diarrhea. Diarrhea, okay. Yeah. All right. So three and four, That's that seems to be the... I don't know. It feels I weird to call it the, the sweet, sweet spot. spot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a sweet spot. Let's say it. Let's say it. <laughs> okay. No. So uh, it, patients with hepatic encephalopathy, so because not all bowel movements are created equally... Paul, you're you're going to groan through this session. Uh, not all bowel movements are created mm -hmm. equally. So if someone's having two or three bowel movements with like a Bristol stool scale one, like pebble-like stools, that's probably not helping uh, as far as preventing their hepatic encephalopathy. So they tried to look and see if incorporating the Bristol stool scale into patient counseling about uh, how to avoid hepatic encephalopathy worked. And it actually looked like when they were being treated for their hepatic encephalopathy with, let's say, lactulose and told to have two or three bowel movements a day and hopefully having Bristol stool scale like three or four stools rather than one or, you or, know. Or seven, I apologize. One to seven, seven, one, seven. To seven okay. one to seven, one to seven. I'm a bad pediatrician. One You're to bad seven. bad pediatrician. Okay, one to seven. Yeah. So anyway, we score all the way to they, these patients, when, when they were having those Bristol three and four stools two or three times a day, they had lower admissions. Uh, less hepatic encephalopathy related admissions, and they were more stable on their hepatic encephalopathy therapy. So I'm going to definitely, this is practice changing for me. I'm definitely going to start incorporating that into, to, it's fun to talk with any patient about, you know, the Bristol stool chart, but I think especially for these patients. People love talking about their poop. It's they do. Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing. That's one of the weird benefits of being a doctor. People will talk, they'll meet you for one minute and they'll immediately start talking to you about bodily functions, which normally they don't talk to anybody else about. <laughs> Uh, okay. The other one, uh, and I know we've talked about this on the, on the show before the pickle juice stuff, right? Justin, you, mm. this is one of my favorite anecdotes, the evolution of pickle juice, the, 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 how the podcast affects medical education in that we had a episode with Joel Toff about, uh, chronic kidney disease when I was a resident. So it was five years ago or so. And he dropped this pearl that pickle juice can help with muscle cramps that I remember doing the fact checking because I was the, the correspondent yeah. at the time and there was no evidence for this. It seemed like he was just kind of pulling it out of thin air. And then I was a senior resident at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and I was looking at uh, an H&P from an intern that specifically said with a little open checkbox, pickle juice for muscle cramps. And I remember thinking like, this is, this is the power of podcasting. There's no way this guy heard it from anything other than the curbsiders. And now, six years later, 
We have a study. Yeah, yeah. the Pickles trial. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure, I haven't confirmed this with him, but Elliot Tapper, he, he has claimed he listens to the show, which I don't know why he would, Paul, but he says he listens. So maybe he heard Pickle Juice on the show. the exact amount of time to do a Pickle Juice study would be yeah. about five yeah. years. Five years. <laughs> yeah. He picked the wrong organ, though. In right. That, uh... So Pickle Juice in the Pickle study, spelled P-I-C-C-L-E-S, oh. um, was in a food... <laughs> Very <laughs> embarrassing. Not how you spell pickles. <laughs> <laughs> he, he misspelled it on the first Swinging paperwork. And then just, and then just roll with it. Like, We're going to go with it. Why he's not a cardiologist. <laughs> this was in the food is medicine issue of the American Journal of Gastroenterology in 2022. And uh, I mean, there's there was a lot of great stuff she talked about with this, but essentially it, it did pickle juice, a tablespoon of pickle juice um, did help compared to placebo to, and, and of, of course this couldn't be a blinded trial. It was, they were doing tap water versus pickle juice. So <laughs> it's hard, it would be hard to blind this. Um, <laughs> they could have done better than tap water. I they could have done better. Do. Maybe they could have. All right. Sorry about that, Elliot. Uh, we don't mean to criticize. We, we love this study. So this was, they limited the patients to three tablespoons per day, you know, worried about sodium loading. Um, and it was like 69% versus 40 percent of patients had their cramps aborted with pickle juice compared to tap water. So a 29% more uh, reduction in, in leg cramps. On the visual analog scale, it was a reduction of about two points with pickle juice compared to tap water. There wasn't weirdly a difference in health-related quality of life, but they didn't find any adverse effects on ascites. So I think this is we safe to recommend up to three tablespoons a day of pickle juice for your patients. Plus, it's fun to recommend and talk about. And uh, I'm I'm a fan, Paul. And and did you specify what type of pickle juice? I feel like this is important because patients want themselves. Yes. So uh, this was brined dill or kosher pickle juice, not the sweet or bread and buckle p- butter pickle juice. And Paul, if people have that around, that's just sick and twisted anyway. Because who likes sweet or bread and butter They're pickles? Delicious, you psychopath. They're all right. Well, anyway, I I I am not on board with that. And but... by the way, never had a leg cramp. So I'm saying, <laughs> just because they weren't studied doesn't mean they don't work. All right. Uh, I've totally lost track of thought, Chris. <laughs> Chris, you know, we're talking about, there's a lot of sodium in pickle juice, yeah. but you went to a hyponatremia Ooh, talk. Nice, and nice. Uh, I want to know, <laughs> I want to know about this U to P ratio. Tell me about that. Yeah. So it's Saturday morning and it was the seven o'clock session on Saturday morning. And I was very impressed by how many people were actually there learning about hyponatremia and SIDH. Um, you know, we've talked about hyponatremia a bunch on the show with Joel. And um, I think one of the things that I don't think we we brought up during that show was the use of the U to P ratio. Um, so U P ratio, it's urine sodium plus urine potassium divided by um, plasma sodium. And using that ratio, um, I think one of the the things out of the talk was discussing how actually how poorly people actually do respond to fluid restriction when you have hyponatremia. And so one good way to sort of see to predict whether they may respond is doing this U to P ratio. And so if that ratio is greater than one, then those are the people that you might want to try a different type of additional treatment besides fluid restriction. Um, I think what was nice about the session is they talked about, and actually brought some really good studies talking about, you know, things like Vaptans. And so then you talked about the salt trials, but you know, they tend to be very expensive and they also, I think they limit the use to more than 30 days to less than 30 days because of toxicity issues. Um, but what Joel brought up before is the, the use of urea. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, during the, during the talk, he, he sort of did the, the, uh, the comparison between how much osms there are. So usually it's like 30 grams of urea equals 500 milliosms of solute, which equals 15 grams of 
of like salt tablets um, yeah. or or 88 grams of protein, which is apparently uh, a 16 ounce steak. And the joke was they'll probably die from MI before they uh, yeah. get their hyponatremia fixed. But the point is uh, when you're, if and this was this for the U to P ratio and uh, were they specifically talking about SIADH? Yes, that? yes, okay. yes. Yeah, so with, with, with SIADH, would they respond to fluid restriction alone or are you gonna need to boost their solute yeah, intake solute. as well? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And we have some equations in our original hyponatremia show notes where Joel talks about like a person's solute intake is roughly like 10 milliequivalents per kilogram. So a 60 kilogram person uh, would, would take in 600 milliosms a day. So when you're talking about 30 of urea is 500 milliosms, that's almost like doubling their solute intake for the day. Yep. And that, that favorably, that favors these equations and it's going to really let them have much more liberal fluid intake and, right. and get rid of that um, extra free water. So, because you can't pee out just plain free water, Paul. You need some solute. It's as hard as I've tried, you're right. You're right, yeah. All right, that that's great stuff. Um, so urea, I don't know. Did he talk about cost of urea? I, I mean, yeah. in the hospital, it hasn't been an issue, but I, I haven't prescribed it outside the hospital too much, but I, I think that might be a concern. Yeah, but. so the big thing is urea is considered a, a dietary supplement, so yeah. it's non-prescribed. You can buy it. And one of the big things is it, tastes pretty bitter, which is why they have to flavor it. It comes in lemon-lime flavor, apparently. which is weird, you know? <laughs> Here, taste it. <laughs> help with your urine. Take this lemon-lime flavored drink. Um, but anyway. apparently the price goes between $90 to $240 a month, depending what type yeah. of version you have, whether it's flavored or not. So, but I mean, you think about it, it's still cheaper than many of the Vaptans. So, and probably can take it for a much longer time yeah, in terms of sell. safe. Yeah. Like, here's this number we're not happy with that you're not feeling. You should probably take the stuff that tastes awful that's $200 a month. You know, Paul, that that cost gives me a little bit of uh, you know discomfort oh, no. <laughs> right here, Paul. You might say I'm having some dyspepsia. No, I just say that. That's not um, what dyspepsia is. But <laughs> now, did you did you? <laughs> I love that segue. Did you hear? Did you hear any good talks on dyspepsia, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> Are we still friends? Do you hate me? <laughs> Should we end the podcast right now? Uh, oh, that would be amazing. Um, in, in fact, I, I did hear a good talk about dyspepsia. So Curbsider's favorite, Iris Wang, um, as part of the multiple small feedings for the mind session, um, gave her a talk about dyspepsia and then also about the thoughtful use of PPIs, which I thought was also a great component of the talk. But mm. along the lines of dyspepsia, I'll, I'll share my favorite pearl and I'll let you talk about whatever it is that you're talking about, Matt. <laughs> um, but she, Dr. Wang was talking specifically about functional dyspepsia, which just by definition is not going to have endoscopic findings. There's not going to be abnormal labs to go with it, but the patients are going to be miserable. Like That's just the way that this works. Um, those patients are probably invariably going to get an upper endoscopy just to make sure that you're not missing anything scary because they're, they are having persistent discomfort after meals. You have to investigate it. Um, but she has this great way of framing the conversation where she tells patients, listen, I know that you have functional dyspepsia. You meet all the diagnostic criteria. We know what this is. We're doing our due diligence here. So we're going to do the test, make sure we're not missing cancer or anything scary, but we already have the diagnosis. And I think this framing happens because so often we send patients for testing that comes back negative and then patients interpret that as that means there's nothing wrong with me. Um, or that you don't think that there's anything going on with me, at least. In this way, she's framing the conversation. She's setting expectations. We know you have this disease. We know that you're miserable. We're going to do our best to treat you. We're just checking to make sure we're not missing anything else. And that way, patients feel validated. They understand the process. And they're more likely to have a good relationship with you, which is, um, it sounds like 90% of the fight of actually treating this. So I, I thought that was a really great way to, to have the conversation with patients. And we probably missed that piece a lot of the time. Yeah, and she she made the point, uh, because of a lot of the therapies for this uh, are... Related, they can 
medications like TCAs that are also antidepressants right. or anti-anxiety can be anti-anxiety medications. She tells them, I know these are medicines that are also used for anti-anxiety, anti-depression. In your case, I am using this for functional dyspepsia. Um, and, and she sort of frames it that way because she says, if patients think you're just treating anxiety, they're not going to, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're not going to take the medication. So it's, it's very important how you talk to patients about the, this condition. And we talked to her about disorders of gut brain interaction at length, where she really gets into depth of this. So if you're interested in more, check out that prior episode with, with Dr. Wang. Paul, at the same session, uh, and Justin and Chris, I think it sounded like you guys had a little more uh, experience with cystatin C, but I went to that because I, I'm, I'm interested in that. Um, I don't, I have not used that. I don't think I've ever ordered it actually. And um, I'm sorry, I don't have the speaker's name in front of me right here, but he was talking about use of cystatin C, saying that it's affected by uh, fewer um, non-renal factors than something like creatinine, which we know is dependent on like muscle mass and um, it, it has its pitfalls and in interpretation. So he did say that it it is a good um, it is a good way in some patients to reclassify CKD. So if they're creat based on their creatinine, their eGFR is estimated to be so somewhere between forty five and sixty. That actually Medicare will cover cystatin C being sent because you can actually reclassify some patients as either having worse or better uh, GFR compared to what you would have estimated with a creatinine. So. I think this is something that maybe will become more common right now. It's a send out test and it's a little more expensive than creatinine. So I think that's where it's been limited in usefulness. What, what's your experience with it? Yeah, so I've used cystatin C a couple times, specifically in uh, demographic patients of people with like cerebral palsy who have very low muscle mass and the creatinine is, you know, less than 0.1 even, or people that have a very large amount of muscle mass where we know that the creatinine can be um, affected by just having a lot of muscle yeah. breakdown. And there's great calculators that combine both creatinine or cystatin C. So in those patients, it can be very helpful. And I think that point of differentiating, especially like 3A versus 3B, can be... Uh, you know, a very different prognosis of a patient. And so I've used it a couple of times. I will say it is one of these burdensome tests where it's a send out, it comes back three weeks later. By that time, you know, the patient has moved out of state and, you know, you don't even see him anymore. Yeah. But, um, Although I, I do feel that, you know, as this uh, test becomes probably more accessible, it's probably going to become our gold standard in the future. I just feel like it, we're going that way. You you may be right. You may be right. And and we calling it on the show right now is just going to make us yeah. look good in a couple yeah, of years. You know, I wanna, if it doesn't happen, no one's going to remember these. Yeah, no. It does. You can always go back and mention this point. So uh, off the cuff, I just wanted to the the other speaker there was Dr. Stephanie Mayer from Richmond, Virginia, and she uh, she talked about terzepatide, which I feel like there's a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. It's not yet as of today, and she she made this point. She's like, you have to keep looking it up every day because it's any day now. It's probably going to be approved officially for weight loss, but right now it's just approved for type in the absence two di of diabetes. You mean in, in the absence of yeah, right now it's only approved for diabetes, uh, but it, it will probably be approved for weight loss um, even in patients who don't have diabetes in the very near future. Um, she said that this is, it seems like it's more potent even in head-to-head -head trials of semaglutide, the one milligram dose for diabetes and lowering the A1C. Um, the A1C drop is like more than 2% at several of the doses that were looked at. The weight, the people were losing something like 7.8 to 12.4 kilograms on this medication. And um, she said that we're still waiting for the cardiovascular outcomes trial with this because that mm -hmm. you remember 
the Glitazones had one of them was canceled. What was Rosie? Canceled. Rosie, Glitta, <laughs> Rosie Glitazone was canceled, right? Because of uh, worse cardiac outcomes. So that's how we accidentally found out that SGLT2s and the GLP1 agonists have all these other benefits because we were doing the safety trials and we found yep. out that this is like, wow, this is not only is it safe, it looks like it's really good <laughs> right. for the heart. So we're waiting for the outcome trial uh, for cardiovascular outcomes. That's expected October 2023. So uh, hopefully that'll be good. We know that there's black box warnings for thyroid C cell tumors, which and which they saw in rats. So people with a like medullary thyroid cancer or men, uh, multiple endocrine neoplasia type two A or B shouldn't take this. But the other point she made is that when patients are adjusting their doses of, and I believe she was saying either GLP-1 agonists or GIP GLP-1s, they should use an alternative contraceptive medicine for four weeks after the changing the dose or starting the agent, which I had never heard of before. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and no. she said her and her clinical pharmacist looked it up and they couldn't find any like studies of this, but that they were just like, okay, people need to know about this because no. that's like a... That's you know, a class for all classes? It seemed like it was a for... class thing, yeah. So I'll, I'll see what I can dig up in the show notes wow. to, Interesting, to you put remember in there. With our metabolic surgery, there's sort of this period of hyperfertility sort of post-operatively where you have to be especially oh, mindful too. Oh, it's like, I wonder if there's not some... Now, yeah. now we're outside the realm of my endocrinology expertise, but like it just, it, it's, yeah. it seems like a consistent theme, interestingly. You can still fly on a plane though, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it, then, it just depends as long as you don't want anything flying out of you. Uh, Paul, so, you know, you seem upset uh, <laughs> and I know you're an endurance athlete, so uh -huh. I worry about your health. Right. Um, what is there a chance your CAC score is higher than a non-endurance athlete? And should I worry about that? <laughs> <laughs> this, I mean, this I'm was really stretching these. Yeah, really I think we're doing great. Because also, by the way, like my CAC score, I'm sure is a bazillion just because of a number of lifestyle choices that we don't have to get into here. Um, but it, this was almost a throwaway point on a, a recent talk, like a talk that happened as of this morning. And I just want to make sure I have the name here so that I'm giving sufficient credit. This was Dr. Lauren Weber from Confluence Health in Washington, who gave the talk on cardiovascular risk reduction and lipid management, how low should you go? Um, answer, pretty low. But a, a point that she <laughs> that she kind of threw out there is that endurance athletes tend to have higher CAC scores, weirdly, um, but also they also tend to have better cardiovascular outcomes. So they're, it, they're sort of the one subpopulation to maybe use with caution when you're thinking about coronary artery calcium scoring. In most cases, all plaque matters um, and confers some risk. But in those patients in particular, it's just, it, it kind of muddies the waters a little bit. So just do bear that in mind when you're doing calcium scoring on patients who tend to be endurance athletes, which I'm sure we all have just, you know, hundreds of. It's a healthy type of calcium, I think, is the... <laughs> I, I, I don't. I mechanistically, I don't fully understand. I'm, I'm sort of furiously looking through articles, hoping that Matt wasn't going to throw it to me, but I've not found a, a super good explanation, but it's it's just something to be mindful of when you're doing your testing. Well, Paul, I'm sure we'll all be tearing our hair out about uh, <laughs> figuring out whether or not that was... That was but Paul, we, uh, we have a chief of dermatology, Dr. Helena Pacheca. She was it's here giving best. two great talks. Her hair and nails talk, which she gave yesterday evening, but I watched this morning, the replay. I would encourage everyone to watch the replay of it. It's fantastic. She had some really great pearls. I'm going to focus on just one of the narrow pearls here because this is something I've always been worried about. She mentioned that in patients with black or brown skin, a, a large percentage of them by the age of 50 are going to have at least one nail with hyperpigmentation. And what do we do with that? And there's there's some benign features that you can look out for, especially if the patient, you ever get the patient with that like hyperpigmented mm -hmm. band across their nail. Yeah, the and, longitudinal melanonychia, you see it and your heart goes a little bit faster. Yes, exactly. So what so, do I worry about here? So let me, pull, let me pull up my slide here. So 
the the thing the thing that's important uh, and I had it teed up and now and now I'm losing uh, and now I lost Listen, my place. You're doing great, buddy. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Okay. So for I mean, the, we could just be on, but instead, let's just all watch Matt just sort of scroll <laughs> through my iPad. <laughs> so for for the longitudinal band, uh-huh. there there are some some risks, so some things that make should make us feel less concerned for malignancy. So do you want to take a guess at what any of those are, Paul? So I would guess, gosh, it's if it's on every single finger that is reassuring, as opposed to sort of one that is focused. I would imagine. Yes, that there you go. I feel like the one we're supposed to get really I feel excited like we about. We should have Family Feud and like it yes. flips down. Good answer. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. Thank you. Um, if it goes into the nail bed, I feel like that's one that I'm supposed to be a little bit panicked about too, which which also makes sense. Um, and then otherwise, no. Tell me what else should be concerning or reassuring to me. So what would what would you like to see? A streaky streak or just a uniform band with like very clear borders? I feel like the fact that it's even given the name streaky streak seems bad. Like if you're <laughs> yeah. if you're calling it something, <laughs> that probably signifies it. something. So I'm gonna right. guess clear borders are better if you're if you're yeah. looking yeah. for stuff. Yeah. So if it's a uniform, uniform band, uh clear borders, like sharp borders, that's that's better. Um if it you know, from proximal to even if it goes proximal. But I'm I'm not uh, I'm not speaking well today, Paul. Yes. So if it's a clear band with sharp borders, that's better than if it's the band. It's kind of streaky, and you're like, where does the border of this end? You know, yeah. that's the streaky streak that you should be worried about. You're right. Multiple digits is better than having it on a single digit. It's the it seems like the thumb is the most common place that might be involved. Uh, well, what about uh, what if they they say that they had a history of trauma? Like, do that is that reassuring? There we go. Yeah, let's get some other people involved in this game. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't Chris, <laughs> great question because weirdly, I would have thought trauma would be a benign thing, but she said that it seems like maybe this it could be recall bias, but people who report a history of trauma to the nail actually more likely to have a melanoma, which which is weird. That that was not intuitive to me at all. Uh, Justin, what do you think about the onset? What's more reassuring, chronic or abrupt onset? I am going to say that chronic is more concerning. You're you're wrong, Justin. But that's ah, a nice try. Nah. Thanks for playing. Uh, so Ugh. so chronic, yeah. So multiple digits, chronic, uniform band with sharp borders. That's all stuff that's good. And if you close your your eyes and you feel the nail and it feels nice and smooth, you know that's also reassuring. Mm-hmm. Versus if you're feeling the nail and it feels very like dystrophic and rough. Uh, you know, that that's a bad sign. If it's a single digit, older age person, abrupt onset, these are all things that maybe sort of raise your, and they have the streaky streak. You got to mm-hmm. raise your concern for a melanoma and you're going to send that person. Borders being bad and skin stuff, so not yeah. surprising. So send that person mm-hmm. over to, to dermatology. But uh, lots of great pearls in that talk. And maybe one hair, one hair one, Paul, because we, we talked about the three common types of non-scarring hair loss being alopecia areata, androgenic alopecia, which is like the male pattern baldness. And then the other one was uh, telogen effluvium, where people are really stressed by something and their hair is just falling out. But the other one, traction alopecia, Paul, were you aware, have have you heard of this one? I have. And uh, we talked about this ahead of time. This kind of crosses between Initially, it can be non-scarring, but if it's there long enough, you can get some inflammation. It can become scarring, can become a type of permanent hair loss. So those patients, they can be treated. There's topical things that can be done, but also just sort of avoiding the trigger, which is this really tightly pulled hairstyle, which you can get with gymnasts, nurses, people in the military that have to pull their hair back. So look look out for that one. That's I, I would you add that like to your list. Tight braids too is a, yeah. it's a common finding. Yeah, so I would I would add that to your list. 
Um, but that's it. I mean, we we recapped a lot, guys. Yeah. I mean, I think Close. probably probably this is going to be a ninety, maybe a hundred minute episode. But you know what, audience, you can enjoy it. I think uh, our best one, maybe maybe our best one. ever. Yeah, our totally. shot. Also, Paul and I are wearing the same thing right now, which is great. So we'll take awesome. a picture of that. Uh, well, are you going to talk about the logo and why it looks different? Oh, that's that's nice of you to bring up, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> it's because uh, we now have some. Uh, if people want additional content and additional access to uh, Paul and I and and the team. We have a, a Patreon now. There's a Discord where Chewman's on there. Or actually, our whole team's on there. Mixing up, we're getting questions from the Mixing audience. Yeah. And twice a month, we're doing bonus episodes. So if people want to check that out, they can go to patreon.com slash curbsiders. And uh, did you guys want to plug anything? Because I know you guys have a podcast. Oh yeah, that's we right. Do. We, yeah, the the <laughs> Peds one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, pediatrics one. That's <laughs> right. Um, yeah, for anyone who's uh, interested in, in pediatrics, whether it's because they're a pediatrician who's accidentally watching an internal medicine <laughs> podcast, if you're med peds, if you interact with children at any point, um, we have a a spinoff of the Curbsiders, the Cribsiders, mm. um, where we do two episodes uh, a month about pediatric core topics. Uh, same great template, uh, fun colors, and um, you should take a listen. And uh, yeah, or thecurbsiders.com. You can see all our podcasts uh, there. Uh, all the Curbsiders podcasts and ours are on there. And with that, Paul, I think we should get to an outro. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Uh, deeply unsettling. Did not care for that. Still hungry for more? Join our Patreon and get all of our episodes ad-free, plus twice-monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash curbsiders. You can find our show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox, including our Curbsiders Digest mat, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. That's right, Paul. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. Uh, you can subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. You can also email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that most episodes, probably not this one, not this one, are available. <laughs> I don't have the energy, Paul. Are available for uh, CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Wanted to give a special thanks to our whole team here for furiously attending sessions to uh, try to recap this wonderful ACP IM 2023 conference uh, and to ACP for having us, uh, inviting us to be here. Thanks to their their marketing folks who, who brought us in, made this happen. Uh, our technical production for the show is done by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Chris the Chew Man Chew is the moderator on our Discord. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. This has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. This has been Justin Lee Burke. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.